And it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello, everybody. It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, theater, past, present, and future. We're going to be talking about a new piece of experimental drama that combines some very old stories with some very modern technology. It's a play called The Thinning Veil, and it runs over the next two weekends at UC Santa Cruz. It's the creation of writer-director Kirsten Brandt, who's a lecturer in theater arts at the university, and producer Ted Warburton, assistant professor of dance at UCSC. The Thinning Veil is based on the cycle of Greek myths and dramas involving the mother of all dysfunctional families, known as the House of Atreus. Its members include Agamemnon, Clytemnestra, Electra, and other famous characters from Homer's Iliad, and the classic tragedies known as the Oresteia. The technological twist here is that the action takes place in multiple locations, Two different groups of actors in two different theaters representing two distinct realities performing simultaneously. And the performances are linked by a technology known as telematics, which we will explain in just a few minutes. But first I wanted Ted Warburton and Kirsten Brandt to give a little background on the play, so I had them read from the program notes. I'm Ted Warburton. I had directed, choreographed, and produced my first telematic performance at UC Santa Cruz with colleagues from New York University in 2005, a dance called Lubricious Transfer. By most standards, it worked. The performance was a success. Lubricious Transfer received a lot of attention in the U.S. and abroad, which emboldened me to create and produce more performative technological projects. By 2008, I felt the work and my efforts had been exhausted by the efforts to mount increasingly complex events. The work needed new focus, creative energy, and vision. I'm Kirsten Brandt. I had been searching for new ways to incorporate digital media into live theatrical events. I directed and produced countless shows utilizing video production, images, and text. I had some success with actors interacting with pre-recorded characters on film, but felt that the rigidity of the tape character hindered the spontaneity and life of the performance. One One day day in 2010, 2010, we found found ourselves chatting about multi-site, simultaneous live performance performance broadcast over over the the internet. internet. Kirsten was curious, and I, having admired her work as a director and writer for a long time, was flattered. I knew Ted's research was on the forefront of technology and was eager to know his thoughts on spoken text with telematic theater. Our conversations led us to various questions, some with answers, some without. What is the audience's experience? How can we use performative technology to bridge community? What is the future for this type of theater? Should we use an existing text and layer the technology on top? The technology needs to organically stem from the text and be embedded into the world of the play. This meant a new text. A new way of writing a film-play script hybrid specifically designed for the telematic environment. This was a truly novel idea. How many opportunities does one get to witness the beginnings of a new genre of theatrical performance? We chose the ancient Greek plays surrounding the house of Atreus as an anchor for this exploration. We We invite you to witness The Thinning Thinning Veil, an original original telematic telematic play for the 21st century. We We hope you enjoy it half half as much as we have enjoyed enjoyed making it. Fade to black. So that is you, Ted, and you, Kirsten, explaining the background of this play, The Thinning Veil. 
Correct. And you're actually – you've got it laid out like a script here, but these are program notes that people will read before they, they see the play. Correct. And they're actually going to read it in the format in which we have developed this new hybrid film play script, which is in multi-columns with camera shots listed as well as to what they would be seeing on a screen in addition to what text is being spoken in each room. Can I be honest and say I'm already confused? <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> Welcome to our world. It's staging for stage and screen simultaneously. Okay. So we have a live performance on two stages, and we have video from one stage to the other and vice versa happening also simultaneously. Correct. That's right. So people will be seated in one of two rooms watching one of two groups of actors and the other group of actors on screen. Have I made sense? That's right. And we're streaming over the Internet. So conceivably, somewhere down in the future, we could also be streaming this in for, to a third or fourth or fifth audience out, out on the web. Hmm. And you used a word, the two of you. <laughs> I don't think most of us are familiar with telematic. Right. Telematic is, um, comes out of a tradition of performative performance and technology that really goes back to the 60s. And telematic literally means, it's a word that Roy Ascot coined, literally means multi-site, simultaneous, live, streaming over the Internet, performance or art. Mm -hmm. And back in the 60s, it wasn't the Internet, but they were using some kind of closed-circuit technology. That's right. So a combination of video and live performance from multiple locations. Right. All right, all right. And you were explaining, the two of you, how you came together. Ted, you had a background in dance, but also in these telematic... Uh, technology-assisted, video-assisted performances, right? Right. But you right. were looking to inject some more life into that? Right. Well, I had done it in dance, so it, it was only movement. So you could synchronize. In other words, one of the issues in telematic performance is latency. The further you are apart, the more latency creeps into the stream. And in dance, latency, you can work with latency. You can have fun with latency. And so even if you're not perfectly synced up with the music or with the bodies that are being projected behind you, there's a way in which you trust the audiences to kind of create their own interpretation of what's, what's happening. You can't do that when you have a text. <laughs> Unless you want a weird sort of delay or echo effect, like a bad long-distance phone call. Right. Um, so what you're saying is that when you do a performance of dance and you are collaborating with some distant dancers uh, projected, you know, via video, there is a delay because of the, the distance that takes that signal to travel. But you can work with that as a dancer, harder with a play. That's right. And Kirsten, you were coming from a more traditional theater background, less less high tech. Right. Well, I had run a company in San Diego that was an avant-garde theater company, and we were always trying to push the boundaries of what theater could be. So looking at what the theatrical conventions are and then taking a little sledgehammer to them. The company I ran was called Sledgehammer. Um, so I have always been really interested in what is next in theater, in what conventions can be broken. And for my very first show running my old company, um, we utilized at that time slide projectors with projected text to comment on the action that was taking place. When I got an NEA grant to do that show again, video projection had come in, and video projectors were actually affordable. And we started playing then with pre-recorded video, projected imagery for backgrounds. And I've tried a lot to really incorporate in my work in major regional theaters a level of video 
technique because a lot of theater companies are a little tentative when it comes to areas of technology. And I think that this is the next realm for theater to go into is really taking in what we can do with technology and owning it in a way we just really haven't done. It's sort of this, oh, there's video and a little fear of the video creeping in. I think we need to embrace it head on and just grab that bull by the horns and use it to make something live and visceral. Why? I mean, um, why not just stick to the good old basics of a bunch of actors on a stage and a live audience? Now, I, I do want to say that I love <laughs> actors on a stage. My, I'm, I love directing just one, you know, one group of actors on a static set. Great. I'm happy with that, too. But I do believe that with the level of technology people are experiencing on a daily basis, that it can help augment and enhance a performance. It can also alienate an audience. It can draw attention to the fact that we are media junkies. Um, I think it can just be used in a educational way and an entertaining way. And it also opens up doors for new avenues of exploration. There's stuff we can do with video that is just impossible to do with stagecraft. There's stuff that we do with stagecraft that is impossible to do with video. And I don't want to get rid of all of the beautiful things we can do with simplicity and a single candle on stage to have a candle projected. Um, so I, I think that there's ways the two can be married. Um, but I'm also interested in talking, when Ted and I started talking about this idea of really using technology to connect community. There's so often performances I want to see, but geographically it's impossible for me to get there. And watching a filmed version of, say, an opera or a stage play just doesn't work because the medium's not meant to be filmed. So to create a hybrid that is meant to be filmed and meant to be viewed perhaps from your own home or from another with another audience, I think is something we need to be looking at in the future to just really start connecting us. Mm. Um, Ted, how did you get into what you're calling telematic uh, technology applied to performance art? Um, your background is, as I understand it, dance, ballet, yeah? Right. So and Nothing's um, more old-fashioned than ballet. <laughs> That's right. Kirsten and I share a love of the classics. Um, after a career in dance as a performer, I went back to school. I had not gone to school, so I went back to school. And one of the areas that I was interested in was technology, technology and education and technology, especially the, the Internet. That dates me, but the Internet was just really coming online for those of us to be able to use it. And it was, was still the 90s? It was still the 90s, yeah, yeah early 90s. But it's text-based. It wasn't video. But there was a sense that something was coming that would be soon be able to be on uh, you know, motion motion pictures on online. So um, I began to work in that area in Boston and then got a job at NYU directing a dance program there. And there were a coterie, a group of people in the music department who were beginning to do this work called telematic performance, connecting musicians um, between New York and Vienna, New York and Tokyo, all over the place. And so they were playing with these ideas of telematic performance and music. And it was just a small step to say, why can't we this be broadcast and dance? Why can't we get projectors up here, not just to hear the sounds of other people, but also to see them? And so uh, I, I kind of piggybacked on, on this group and started to develop work of my own. Came to Santa Cruz and staged Lubrish's Transfer 
And uh, and you're going to have to explain that title. Yeah, Lubricious Transfer, right. So, well, Lubricious is a salacious um, reference to this notion of technology as both having these qualities of both of hum- the humanity aspect of the wetness, but also the dryness of the, the sending of data across signals. So we might be sending a very personal message, but in fact, it gets sort of desiccated as it travels across um, time and space to get to the other side. So it's this sense of both the wet and dry, the, 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 the hot and coldness of technology. And I was I was thinking it was a reference to online porn. But I'm glad you <laughs> set me straight on that. Well, that was our hope. That's what we were trying to bring people in. <laughs> no, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go no, on, not please. At all. <laughs> um, you know, philosophically, I, f- I felt also at that time as we began to see technology come online that, that the scientists were really using the technology, and especially the online environment, and that we were, as artists, going to be left behind. And in fact, the technology itself would suffer if we didn't, come on board and in some ways use the technology and humanize the technology uh, through art. And so that was a kind of philosophical motivation, but very quickly the aesthetic concerns took hold. And um, some of the projects were just abject failures. But it certainly set out a a kind of research and artistic agenda that uh, I think Kirsten has really taken to the next level. How do you guys draw the line between a gimmick that uses technology for the sake of novelty, right, and something that genuinely achieves something artistic that wouldn't otherwise be possible? That was one of the questions we had, um, particularly when we started figuring out what this play was going to be about. We looked at a variety of texts that already existed and, you know, what we sort of said in our program notes, which is, can we take this technology and pretty much wrench it into an existing text? And the answer was no. That in order to make this non-gimmicky, what we really have to do is create a text that utilizes it. And why why are you going to be in two rooms? Why not keep everybody together? So the conceit of the play then has to embrace the ideas why these two worlds cannot touch. And Happily, we came up with a solution for that in this particular instance in hearkening back to what everyone loves to deconstruct, which is the ancient Greek plays. (laughs) Um, You're not allowed to use deconstruct in this interview. (laughs) Oh, I'm not? Darn. Um, But going back to something that is so anchored in everyone's subconscious um, that most people, even if they don't know who Iphigenia is, they figure it out very quickly um, because they do sort of exist, I think, in our communal, our Jungian consciousness. So we actually did come up with a reason as to why this technology would be needed for this play. And instead of layering the technology on, we use the technology to build. And um, that, I think, makes it incredibly exciting and non-gimmicky because the one thing I don't want to have happen is for this to be like, oh, that was really cool what they did and not have an actual play and an emotional catharsis for the audience to go through while they're watching it. Because it Uh, is always about the audience, and they're the fourth creator in a theater, or the fifth creator in a theatrical event. You have to remember that you're doing it for them. And it's not about getting that really cool shot. It's about how is that shot going to enhance the stage picture that then is going to hit the audience. Okay, so rather than taking an existing play, you know, Tartuffe or, you know, Henry V or whatever, you know, 
Hamlet and arranging the actors in separate locations and combining them together by, you know, long distance video. You created a whole new play right. for, for the purpose of this. Mm-hmm. But you drew on the most ancient theatrical sources available to us or just about, I, right? I did. Ancient Greek tragedy. Yep. Uh, some of the classics. So why did you choose to go back to the Greeks? Um, I love the House of Atreus. I love the story of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra and Iphigenia and Electra and Orestes. I just think that they are the most dysfunctional family on the planet. And in their dysfunction, there's a lot of love that is missed. And I think in today's society, we... I mean, they're they're Greek. They're tragic. It's epic proportions. But we all miss moments with our own families. And so I think there's something relatable. We all get mad at our moms. We all get mad at our dads. We get mad at mom for doing something to dad. We get mad at dad for doing something to mom. We hate our siblings, We, you know, at times. I mean, it just happens. We love our siblings. Um, and so I think that it's relatable. And because it is an ancient Greek text and there's so many different translations, you can actually – you're not taking Shakespeare and trying to modernize it, which, you know, it's just that actually hurts my artistic soul to say to modernize Shakespeare's text. Um, but you can do that with the ancient Greeks. You can take those characters and put them in a modern context and give them modern language, and it still works, which is why I think so many theater practitioners and dancers uh, go back to the ancient Greeks. I mean, I've got pictures of, of Martha Graham dancing um, Clytemestra on my wall, um, just as inspiration for me. So I think that those stories help can help. And you can kind of manipulate those characters a little bit. And it f- all of a sudden fit with what we were doing. Specifically, what are the, the plays you're talking about? Well, I had just read the Iliad a couple years ago and was really, I loved the way Agamemnon was just this Horrible guy. Um, in this he is play, the leader of the Greek he is, army. He is the leader of the Greek uh, army. Sacking and, Troy. And I was just caught off guard by his and Achilles' relationship. And the entire Iliad is about these two men butting heads over a woman uh, for most of the Iliad and going and the war and the carnage. And so I should we catch people up? Yes, we're please. talking about the Trojan War, right? Yes, Trojan War. We're talking about a war kicked off by a prince of Troy. Uh, making off with the wife of Agamemnon's brother, Menelaus. The wife is the famous, beautiful Helen of Troy. Correct. Right? And the Greeks, therefore, wage war on Troy for, what, 10 years? Yep. Eventually sacking it, getting Helen back. Achilles, of course, is the great hero of the Greeks, the warrior hero. Right. Agamemnon, the leader of the Greek and army. So when um, Agamemnon returns home, he is killed by his wife. Clytemnestra. Who kills him because in order to win the war and get favorable wins, he had to sacrifice their eldest daughter. And what he did was he lured them to a place, Clytemnestra and their daughter Iphigenia, and told them that Achilles, the greatest warrior, wanted to marry her. And it was all a ruse. And in fact, he tried to stop them from coming, but they got there anyway. And the mob said, no, she has to die if we want wins in order to get to Troy to win the war. So Clytemnestra enacts her revenge and murders him. And that's the first part of Aeschylus's trilogy, the Oresteia, is called Agamemnon, which is Clytemnestra's revenge on him. And so this family just keeps going. And then you get Electra, the other daughter. Well, let me, let me just sort of again, because these are a lot of names, and I oh, know yes. some people will have this classical background, some won't. But let me just recap briefly. In order to win the war against the Trojans, Agamemnon has to sacrifice his own beloved daughter, Iphigenia, right? Correct. Am I pronouncing mm-hmm. it right? Yep. 
Or some uh, people say Iphigenia. Iphigenia, I say yeah. Iphigenia. Uh, there's a Greek movie, actually, um, years ago, based on this myth, and I believe they said Iphigenia, mm-hmm. but who knows? Um, Every Greek scholar will tell you Greeks. something different yeah, yeah. and yell at you when you don't pronounce it their way. So. But he goes ahead and kills his own daughter, sacrifices her to the gods, and uh, therefore he is able to go and, and, and complete the war eventually. Right. But when he goes home, his wife, who's pissed off at him for killing the daughter, who, yeah. I mean, these these women, why are they so hung up on such things? But, uh, <laughs> in fact, that is what some of the plays say. These women, man, they're impossible. There's they, Helen, there's Clytemnestra, there's Iphigenia, there's Electra, all these problematic women. But uh, so Clytemnestra, taking revenge on Agamemnon, uh, kills him when he gets home. And Electra, another of his daughters, is, you know, mad with rage and, and, and vengeance and the cycle of... Um, recrimination and murder continues. And it also goes back a lot farther in this family, which is the house of Atreus. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of... There is murder, adultery, incest, killing of people's children and feeding to them. I mean, a lot of things that we don't see so much in dysfunctional families today. Correct. (laughs) Nonetheless, you you would contend that this is pretty much how families behave, if less bloodily, right? (laughs) Well, I think everyone is capable of anger and rage. It's what we do with it and how constructive we are at dealing with our own internal emotions. I think that's why we go see theater is we we see, you know, what sometimes our sick wish is enacted on stage. I mean, that's why the Scottish play, I can't say the name of that play. Macbeth, come on. Okay. That's why people go see Macbeth. I mean, that's, you know, they they love that play because here is, they're just acting on it impulse and their ids have gone wild. It's just fabulous. And you know, again, and it's, it's, like it's Lady Macbeth who's the, the big source of all the problems. Exa- well, she, she, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Lady M because um, I'm a theater person. She's going to come out Lady M. Lady Macbeth. Um, because Electra is very similar mm-hmm. in the way she manipulates her brother Orestes. Um, for those of you that don't know the myth, though, when Clytemnestra kills Agamemnon, Orestes and Electra are children. Are, they're still young. And Electra sends Orestes off into hiding in some of the versions. Um, and so it's years later, another 10 years go by before Electra and Orestes are then able to enact their revenge on their mother. And that's pretty much our story in one room, in one venue, is the Electra and Orestes coming together to take their revenge on their mother. Uh-huh. This is, again, your play, The Thinning Veil. Right building on these uh, classical Greek uh, tragedies. And so the central action is this revenge by the two siblings on their mom for killing their dad. Correct, in one's venue. So we, we've split it up. Why can't these two worlds be in the same room? Well, because half of the cast is in the world of the dead and the other half of the cast is in the world of the living. So what's playing out in the world of the living is Electra and Orestes taking their revenge on their mother. What's happening in the world of the dead is we're stuck on the shore of Hades, right near the River Styx, and everyone is stuck there because Iphigenia can't remember what happened to her. She doesn't really know she's dead, and Agamemnon and Achilles can't get to paradise because she hasn't forgiven them. And so the problem in that room is getting Iphigenia to say, I release you. It's fine. You guys can go to paradise. Now, is this part of the story in the original sources, or did you make this up? I made this up. Oh, okay. So, but what I did was I took Iphigenia and Aulis, the play, um, and a lot of the information from the other plays of Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides to come up with the ideas of what was happening in this world. So 
in Iphigenia and Aulis is when she actually is sacrificed. Mm-hmm. And in this world of the dead, we have Achilles and Agamemnon and Cassandra, who is a priestess of Apollo who has the gift of foresight that no one believes because she was cursed by Apollo, who was a spoil of war that Agamemnon brought home. And she ends up being also killed by Clytemestra when she comes home. So that's not confusing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It actually all makes sense when it all plays out. Um, Let's just make the alphabet soup, you know, even more complicated because you mentioned not only all these characters, but you mentioned three the three great Greek playwrights, right? Yes, I do. Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, all of whom wrote and rewrote these stories based on mythological sources. Correct. Um, So this is all sort of collective mythology of the Greeks who these playwrights reworked and reworked and reworked and came up with various different ways of treating them. I mean, their voices are so different. Euripides, how would you describe Euripides? Well, I think Euripides has a sensitivity to women the others don't. I think he's definitely he his plays seem to in, um, have a, a bit of a feminist agenda, um, whereas Sophocles not so much. Um, but there is a certain casualness in the vocabulary in most of the editions and tra- at, uh, translations of the Euripides that I've read. Um, you know what ended up happening for me is I read all of these and so all the, and then percolated on them for such for a time and voices of Homer's characters of Aeschylus's characters started just kind of fueling how I constructed my characters. And so I kind of took the myth as well and manipulated it Mm. um, to get my Electra and my Iphigenia. My Iphigenia gets very angry. Iphigenia in the Euripides does not. She is... She goes meekly to her sacrifice? She says, in order to save all of you, I will gladly die. Uh And she goes. And she... And in some versions, she is replaced by a deer or a lamb by the gods because they they go, oh, she can't really be sacrificed. And in some versions, she's dead. But there is another play where Iphigenia is a priestess on another island somewhere, totally alive. She didn't get killed. Um, So depending on which track you want to take, and that, that becomes really exciting, I think, for actors, is there's such a rich history and contradictions in the history. In one version of Electra, she's a virgin. In another, she's still a virgin, but married to this farmer who she just detests and is an outcast living close to the palace. In another version, she's still living at home with mom. And there's another version where there's even a third sister. So when you're compiling all of this, you sort of have to make those choices as to how confusing is it going to be for the audience? How do I streamline everything so in 80 minutes, the audience gets this full story? Um, and it's it's pretty complicated. <laughs> um, but I had worked years ago with another playwright, Kelly Stewart, and she we actually did an adaptation of the entire Oristia. Um That version had a very feminist agenda, and so each play hit on a period of feminist history. And so by the end, it was the feminist backlash in the 1990s. Um, so I've been in love with this this cycle for you know over a, a decade and a half. Well, you've been steeping yourselves in these these plays for, you say, 10 or more years. Oh, yeah. And I think all of Western literary and theatrical tradition draws from these. I mean, you've got Hamlet, you've got Macbeth, you've got Eugene O'Neill, Morning mm-hmm. Morning Becomes Electra, is right. Electra, Long Day's Journey into Night, and a lot of his others, Family Dysfunction, right through Tennessee Williams and maybe Sam Shepard. It's like these things are in our blood, you know? 
as, as a culture. Where did they come from, though? Do you have any idea how the Greeks, were they the first, or do these go farther back? You know, you you can look at a variety of myths and find similar storylines in just about every culture. The Greeks just happen, we have Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, and they just happen to be written down and then passed down. Um, I haven't done a lot of research going farther back, but just in a lot of the research I've done for other things and trying to track down um, like fairy tales, for example, in, in, a, in a class I teach, um, you find just these similarities across cultures and continents, and I and it, it, which is why I think that they've always stayed with us. They just resonate with us in a way that nothing else does. I forgot to and, mention a couple other, you know, cultural institutions: uh, the Jersey Shore, Desperate Housewives, <laughs> and on and on. Our soap operas, our reality shows. They're all based on the same model, it seems to me. And my favorite soap opera the other night mentioned Iphigenia. Really? Yes, Downton Abbey, my favorite soap opera at the moment, mentioned Iphigenia. Must be season two. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. They, I was like, <laughs> did he just mention Iphigenia? He did, and that made me very, very happy. And, of course, Masterpiece audiences will know who he's talking about. But the reference is in there in a way that even if you didn't know, you would understand what that character was about, mm. which is my favorite way of kind of Letting people know about um, mythological beings and, and characters is to give them a reference and go, oh, I don't know who that was, but that person obviously was a self, self-sacrifice is who that name's associated with. Isn't it interesting that the Greeks, though, I mean, we're talking about um, hundreds of years B.C., were, were fascinated more than anything, even when they had these grand historical settings, the Trojan War, et cetera, were really interested, first and foremost, in family dynamics. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and interpersonal dynamics. I yeah. mean, if you read the Homer, the way the the generals and the soldiers behave is countered by the way the gods behave. And the gods are even more petty and more human in certain areas. And they're fighting with each the other. They're all family. Oh, absolutely. They're all inbred. Who's da- dad's doing this? I don't like <laughs> dad's champion. So I'm going to, you know, Athena and Apollo are going, you know, it's. It's a disaster and a mess. And um, you look at those little triangles of relationship that that just branch out and it just dysfunction galore, you know, and no one wants to be wrong. Yeah, and it's it's it actually is really fun to be the spectator and watching that unfold. It's, of course, no fun when you're dealing with dysfunction, but watching it and going, at least that's not my life. Um, is always a good thing. I'd like to add that what is the creative brilliance of Kirsten here is this conceit of creating a portal between these two worlds. The the living and the dead. The living and the dead. And so Clytemestra, to those who are alive, to her, her daughters, she's going crazy. But in fact, what we learn, what we know from the other side is that she's speaking to Iphigenia. And Iphigenia is there in the world of the dead, not yet dead, half dead, not quite all the way to paradise yet. And so this dynamic, this really interesting dynamic is affected through the technology, but it also creates another layer, a layer upon layer of meaning within these stories that are happening both uh, in time and out of time. Hmm. Now, again, I want to get a sense of what experiencing this play would be like. I'd be sitting in a room, let's say I'm in the room with the actors playing the living characters, but somewhere on a wall, I would be seeing a uh, an image of the actors in real time in another room right. playing. Th- so let me tell you. So, so 
first and foremost, in the world of the living, we have the amazing, incomparable Patty Gallagher, who is a stunning actress who raises the level of everybody on the show, including the cast and the crew. And then we have a, an amazing ensemble with her in the world of the living. We have three cameras. And what is different in this show than from any other show that I've done with telematic uh, streaming live multi-site performance is that these cameras are not stable and doing zooms and pans. They're actually mobile. And so you have the veils, which are, are our furies, moving these cameras around into di to capture different shots that are then streamed to the world of the dead. So you might get an extreme close-up of Patty's face saying, no, honey, don't drink that, uh, and have that be blown up into uh, proportions of you know, 15 by 30 on the other side, a really immersive world of, of the dead environment. Wow. And then you have in the world of the dead, you're streaming, you have three cameras again, streaming these different video uh, feeds to the world of, of the living. And projected into uh, a set that is a remarkable set um, designed by Eric Ledoux, a student, uh, that is a, a kind of, uh, we're in like a crypt. You have screens, three different screens, three different size screens that are built into the set itself. So there's not a sense that you, you're sitting in front of a projection screen. Um, we, we've done a beautiful job, I think, of really integrating it into into the show itself. The two groups of actors, uh, the living and the dead in these separate spaces, but projected into each other's space, um, are not talking over each other, right? They're... Oh, there's several different things that we do in this play. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course they're talking over each other. Um, they're talking to each other directly. Um, there's actually, when we, we did a, some workshops last summer, and I had several ideas on how I thought... Because I, I, there's nothing more boring than having one show unfold while something different is happening behind. They have to be connected. So what we have is in one wor world, Patty, who's playing Clytemestra, who's amazing, um, we have her in this level of intoxication so she can communicate with the other world. And they do that through the veil. And so there has to be some way they communicate. So when Electra start, is able to talk to Agamemnon, it's because she's cutting herself and bleeding on his tomb, and her blood actually then connects the two of them. But when it comes to how are they talking, it's regular conversation. We have another layer of what happens, which is perhaps a lot of staging is occurring in one space while two people are having a conversation in another space. Another layer is simultaneous monologues that occur where one person in one space is not connected but talking to somebody in that space while a similar monologue is occurring in the other venue and they're talking to somebody else. So you have then a cacophonous musical uh, choir of voice that if you hear one monologue, great. If you And it's impossible to hear both monologues. Um, but you may catch snippets of one while you're listening to the other. And at one point we actually have four characters speaking simultaneously. Can the brain handle this? Yes. <laughs> yes. If you relax into it, if you're trying, I have to hear every single word everybody's saying, it's just not going to work. Treat it as music, though. And, you know, it's a conceit that we use in theater all the time is this, you know, three people talking at the same time on stage. Um, we're just now adding a level of now we have four people talking simultaneously two in each venue. So you can either choose to tune into one. You might find that you switch over to the other. We, we tested all of these out. I said, are these possible? Because like, I'm not going to write all this if we can't do it. And so far, it seems like it's, it's possible. 
Hmm. And if you had staged this all in one room with the living and the dead, with all of this multivocal stuff going on, would it have been the same or, or is this somehow really different having the, the spaces separated this it's way? It's incredibly different. I don't think this play would exist if it was in one venue. Hmm. Because the play's constructed for this type of media and for this technology, um, I think if I was just writing a play that took place in one venue, the play would be, it would be very different than what it is. And keep in mind, Robert, that when you get a ticket to this show, you get a ticket to one venue. So your experience in the world of the dead, in the dark, this is the Digital Art Research Center Dark Lab, is very different than the experience of the audience in the experimental theater. Does the audience get to choose? Would you prefer living or dead? Or is it a random lottery sort of thing? There's, uh, there's certainly there's choice. Seating's limited. It's very limited, to be honest with you. So it, it, it'll be harder to get into one venue than the other venue. We won't say which one. Um, but, but there certainly but does is. Does the box office offer you a choice, living or dead? Sure, yeah. it does. Well, they say they say dark theater or or, or experimental space. Uh huh. Yeah. And they might and you might say I want this ticket. Name. Well, that's unavailable. I'm sorry. Wow. Um, what's interesting to us is the desire of uh, uh, you know of many people who we talk to to want to see both sides, mm. and and that's kind of a fascinating phenomenon because there's a sense in which the question becomes, why isn't this all just pre-recorded? Why not just make a movie if this is what we want to do? Why not put pre-recorded video up there and pretend, that's, pretend that we have another space? And in fact, in, in the research that I've done and the work that I've done, you actually begin to get a kind of energetic feeling from the audiences on the other side. If, you, if the audience laughs on one side, you're going to hear that on the ah. other side. If as the, the veils who are our camera operators pan the audience, you become part of the show. You are in the show in a, in a very real way for the other audience. And so there's a sense in which live theater is about the felt experience of what it is to be confronted by these experiences and emotions embodied in an actor or in a dancer. And so it's not, that's why we go to the theater. We go to the theater to feel something, not just to see something like you would on uh, a television or, or a screen, but to actually feel the actor's body working through these emotions in a way that creates, I mean, the neuroscientists are showing this right now, actually creates resonances in our bodies and our minds. And so the juxtaposition of, of, of the actor and the visual medium, which we're all so accustomed to now. We all have a visual literacy. There's a kind of, the real struggle has been to create a visual poetry as uh, our director of photography, Erin King, who's work, who works with Lucas, has been working with us. She's an alumni of the school and she came down and she's been working with the camera operators and, and with Kirsten on, on the visual poetry because any one of the cameras can go on any one of the screens. So you've got a, you're not just a one-to-one -one correspondence. This camera always has to go on camera A on screen B. Um, it can be camera A on screen B, C, D, E, or F. Hmm. You referred to the camera operators as the veils or the furies. Want to explain yourself? Well, we need to figure out part of, part of this whole, you know, they're in two separate spaces. 
when we figured out the world of the dead and the world of the living, then it came up with, well, what are the camera operators? Are we just going to shoot it like it's a TV soundstage? And that does not interest me in the slightest. I'm like, then we're making TV and that's boring. I want them fully integrated into what the show is. So we came up with this idea that they are the veil. They are the, the thin veil that separates the worlds. So they can respond to each other in the different venues, and they're the connection. Without them, there was no connection, so they then handle the cameras. Um, they switch off the cameras occasionally. Um, we have six veils in, in one space, five in the other space, um, and they manipulate some of the action, but primarily they're, they're an entity that is waiting to be woken up by the fury, and that's what happens at the end of the Oresteia trilogy, is as soon as Orestes and um, Electra kill their mother, her fury is unleashed on them, and they tor- they're tormentors. And usually there's just three. Well, we have many more than that. These, and are, so- these are mythological tormentors who who uh, punish people for killing their parents, yeah? Right. Specifically. Right, right. And we've we've taken some liberty with the function. That's why we're calling them the veils. Mm-hmm. Um, in that they're, in one world, they're waiting for Iphigenia to find out the truth and let her fury become unleashed. In the other venue, they're waiting for Clytemestra's fury to come because they know what's what might be happening. And so they're just, they're, they're, they're waiting with bated breath. And so they're moving things so that they can just explode and come forward. And so not only do we have camera operators, but we have active ac- actors on stage because there's nothing worse than why is that person on stage? Well, they have to be active in what they're doing. And so that solved the problem with cameras for us. Um, and so that's who the veil are. And there's a real choreography to it, um, to moving these actors and uh, veils in the space so that, so that they capture the shot that we're going for, but at the same time, do it in a way that doesn't dislocate the audience, doesn't distance the audience from the action so that they don't feel like they're watching a movie being filmed, but they're watching something mystical and magical and strange happening. And do you have someone in a room, maybe you, Ted, looking at all the video monitors and choosing the the shot, you know, which feed to, to project into which screen and all right. that? All of, all of the, 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 the shots are predetermined. Uh, they're open to interpretation by the veil, who will get the shot as he or she can, is able. But they'll be switched. What's happening live is the switching of the shot onto screens in different right. environments all right. the time. And because there's technology, the first run through, of course, uh, had to have a fail a technology. Sure. Um, so there's also the element uh, for uh, the producer and the director and writer of fear, because there is a real possibility and has happened in the past um, that technology will just simply give out or that uh, someone in some building will decide to download, you know, The Godfather for four hours and slow down the entire network. So we're also depending upon a network backbone here that we have no control over. So in a way, it's not just the cutting edge. It is really truly the bleeding edge because anything can happen at any moment. And it keeps that sense of another, again, the live theater, the possibility of something going wrong. It it, it was what makes it improvisational in a sense. Now, there's one level for the actor that is really um, difficult for what they're doing. They can't see the screens. They are not allowed to see the screens. They, If they are connected with the other world, they look at the camera. So they have no idea what's going on behind them. They can hear, though. They can hear it. 
So they're working off of audio cues instead of visual cues, which is really disconcerting when you're a visual actor. And so we're using a lot of film-based acting techniques, you know, whenever they make those big budget movies. I mean, you're always on a green screen and you're playing, you're emoting to a dot um, or somebody in some crazy costume. Um, And so they actually really have to play forward without having that connection with the person who's being projected behind them. So it's a huge acting challenge for for the cast, and they're they're really taking it in stride. And um, this first the first several weeks of rehearsal was really about orientating them to it because it is disorienting um, to have to act that way. Acting for stage and screen simultaneously, right? Because they're acting with the characters in their worlds, but they're also acting across time and space. Could you guys have made it any more complicated? Um, I th- um, could we have? Um, we tried. We tried. <laughs> I think the level of complexity is about what we could handle at the moment. Yeah. I mean, we have a remarkable uh, production staff. We do. And and a really supportive department. Now, now in the in the ancient Greek tragedies that you're drawing from, Kirsten, the um, – can I use a fancy term like mise-en-scene or something? Please. I use it all the time. Pretty simple. I mean, mm-hmm. right? You have yeah. a couple of actors. Mm-hmm. You have a chorus, which is a group of people sort of speaking in unison, right? A Greek chorus. You don't have a lot of action. It's mostly dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot, whole lot going on, right? Well, there's, there's, it's active. But there is, I've cut the chorus. There is no chorus. Okay. Um, and in the compression... I think it's pretty active what we've what I've come up with. Um but you're right in most it's standing and talking. And so for me it's what does the body do while it's talking and being a person who's trained sort of in physical theater um it's shifting the body it's um it's having the body do things that might seem strange out of context but work within the world. It's creating a visual vocabulary and a visual and a and a physicality that actually works in each space. The way that people move in the world of the living is actually very different than the way they move in the world of the dead. The world of the dead is, um, you know, one of the people I admire as a theater practitioner is Robert Wilson, and he's known for very long, slow, specific movements. And there's a lot of in- Wilson influence, I think, in that in that world. People Just, will know him from Einstein on the Beach. Right. Um, what's another of his most famous? Uh, his Wojciech was going Wojciech. around with Tom Waits, which is <laughs> a Brilliant production, one of my all-time favorite the, the productions opera. on stage. Yeah, his his yeah, yeah it was fabulous. Tom yeah. Waits's CD "Blood Money" is actually the soundtrack uh-huh. for um, for Wilson's work. Uh-huh. But um, so, in order to you you want it to be visually stunning, and not just standing around talking. So we've I've created situations within the play. Um, for example, Electra and her half sister Erigone have to hold Clytemestra down because they think she's. She's drunk and being belligerent, and it might hurt herself when she's actually screaming across the the veil to Agamemnon. And so we have this giant, instead of just a conversation between Agamemnon and Clytemnestra, you have a physical tug of war happening in one space and um, all sorts of physical things happening in the other spaces in order to keep your eye working. And what Ted talked about with the idea of the audience being active, they're an active participant in what we're doing, and to keep them engaged – you know, that's why we have intermissions in theater or we do shows that are 80 minutes long because as an audience member, you're exhausted because does, we're asking you to participate. Does the audience have to know anything about these stories, the traditional stories on, on which this is based? No, I don't think so. You've taken, again, these classical sources um, 
these are multiple works from the Iliad to the Oresteia trilogy of plays, multiple playwrights. Uh, we mentioned them earlier, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and uh, Euripides. Um, and there's also the issue of translation, a big issue. I mean, the way in which these ancient Greek works are translated has a huge impact on how you experience them, right? Correct. And you've yeah. put them all in, in your own language, right? They're in, well, they're in English, yeah. They're in English. But American, I mean, American slang. How's that? Okay. No, American English. Can yeah. you give us a sense of the kind of language you use? Uh, sure. Use? I could, do you want me to read you a monologue? Sure. All right. So what I'm going to read is um, a monologue Electra has. She sort of comes out of time. We are respecting the Aristotelian unity. So what that means is each venue doesn't have a scene change. It's unity of space. So we are in one location. And it's also unity of time, which means once the play starts, it doesn't jump time. Although characters go in and out of time, the linear timeline remains consistent in both spaces. So at one point, Electra... Um, steps out, the veils do something to her, and she steps out and tells us really what's going on inside her head. And so this is this right. is what she says. It's about her paradise. And again, to just remind people, Electra is the daughter of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra. She hates her mom uh, for having uh, killed her father, and she's this you know enduring symbol of grievance and vengeance and family hatred that's been used in many, many plays and many works. So she says, My paradise, I have power. I have strength. There is no fear. There is an end to the constant bombardment of criticism. I savor the anticipation, the anticipation of the moment of their demise, seeing the horror in their eyes as they know the inevitable is about to happen, knowing that they know, that I know, that they know, that we are all know that they are guilty, allowing the goddesses of righteousness and vengeance to possess me. I want them to fear me. My paradise is watching the guilty burn, watching the hounds of hell bite into their flesh, pull the skin from their body, listening to the sound of their screams, their pleads for mercy, which become a symphony in the air, forcing me to dance to its melody. I would conduct the bloody orchestra. A little bit of flesh from her, a little bit of flesh from him, a jet of blood here, a pool of bile there. I want an apology. I want to hold her beating heart in my hand and eat it. I want to dance on their graves. No, piss on their graves. Then peace, then joy. I want to bring back the dead I love. I want to hold my father's hand and run through the meadows, with shoes on, of course, because of bees, and that would totally ruin the whole thing for one of us to be stung by a bee. My paradise is being united with my brother, finding him, the physical him, not the virtual being that I have allowed to stir my mind and warm my... My paradise is knowing the man who writes manifestos of love and hate, who creates viral videos and confronts the elite... In my paradise, we would be together, one voice, one crusader. My paradise is being loved by those I love. By the way, when she says their blood and talks about vengeance on them, she means her mom, Clytemnestra, and uh, her stepdad, essentially. Her stepdad. Uh, Agisthus. Agisthus, who took up with her mom before they killed her father. How old is Electra, roughly, you think? In my version, she's 25. I was going to say she sounds like an angry teenager, but no. She does. She we she has a little bit of arrested development going on there. <laughs> you know, she hasn't left the house. And in our version, she's also this um, Dora Maar-esque character, of this kind of crazy artist who um, is being held down by her family. So she's in the play constructing this monument to her father, this piece of modern art to him. And she has she's she's got a little pent-up hostility, just a little. She went to college and came back. <laughs> she went to college and came back and is stuck at home. <laughs> 
But, you know, she, like all the characters in the plays, um, at least this is my, my interpretation, she has a lot of reason to be angry. Her dad was slaughtered as soon as he got home from war by her adulterous mom, right, and, right. and her lover. Um, you know, every character in this has a good reason to be pissed off. I mean, Clytemnestra has a good reason to kill Agamemnon because he killed her daughter. And there's other history between him and the stepfather. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Electra has a reason to be mad. Orestes, her brother who comes home and then kills the mom, uh, has a reason to be mad at the mom. And then people are mad at Orestes because he killed his mom. And so it goes. These plays don't have a beginning and end. No. And that's the beauty they of them. They just have an endless beginning, you know? E exactly. And, and, and the beauty also is that if you pick a side, if you pick a perspective – you can justify their actions. I mean, every single one of my actors is like, no, I'm in the right. I said, that's exactly where you need to be. You you can feel guilty about the decision you've had to make, make but you need to own it and realize that all your reasons are justified. You can justify it. And that's what makes it a no-win situation for basically this entire family. Um, and it's the beauty of watching it play out. Did you feel uh, any tug, though, in in writing your own version of going all, you know, sort of 21st century post-Oprah and healing everything. Oh, no. <laughs> no. No. That's, that would be a cop-out and the thing I hate most about, um, you know, sometimes you go see a piece of theater and there is like this really pretty precious bow tied at the end of the, of the precious gift you're given of the play. And I find that so unsatisfying and a little... Um, playing down to me. You know, it's a little patronizing. Um, I want ideas. I want to be completely entertained. Um, but I, I, I want to, to feel I've made a choice as an audience member. And that's what I want to give my audience members is a choice. I want them to debate this show when they leave. I want them not to just be talking about the technology, to, but to be saying, oh, Clytemester shouldn't have killed. Oh, no, no, no. She had every right to kill. I want them to have, you know, wine and drink and just have conversations for days and have it live with them and a week later go, oh, now I understand why Agamemnon did that or, you know, have some kind of response. Last night, Kirsten was at the end of the rehearsal. Kirsten was talking to her directorial staff and, and they were all saying, oh, my goodness, uh, Patty Gallagher is just so amazing. And Kirsten looked at them and she said, that's because she makes choices. And then she makes more choices. And then she makes another set of choices. And good actors make choices. But I think what we're saying is that good audiences make choices too. And that these audiences are going to be required to make choices. What are they going to look at? Are they going to look at the action in front of them? Are they going to try to create a foreground background with the, this huge screen behind that actor? Or are they going to look at screen A, B, or C? There are a lot of choices to make. And so it's a, it's a kind of rigorous theatrical experience that is what we want to bring to theater and spe specifically a theater of the future that doesn't require um, audiences, doesn't allow audiences to sit passively back. I'm going to go all Oprah on you guys and ask you, <laughs> are there any moments in, the, in this play that you specifically recognize, relate to? Um, well, I really like the, the Paradise speeches. And it reminds me of These the, are so the Paradise. That's right. So Electra has a Paradise speech. Um, Rigany has a paradise speech, and Achilles and Patroclus, Patroclus all have, all have paradise, paradise speeches. Talking about their idea of paradise, yeah, yeah. And they, and and these are all the They're all and they're all simultaneous monologues. So, so you get this cacophony of what people just want, and some of it's very simple. I mean, Achilles wants 
Led Zeppelin played by the London Philharmonic. That's what he wants to hear. Um, that, that seems Patroclus about right. wants to go yeah, to Napa yeah. Valley and have a glass of wine in a convertible. Achilles wants to work out. Yeah, all he wants the time. to. He wants, he to, go wants to, the gym. to get huge. And, and Arigone so... <laughs> wants a pink unicorn Pegasus. <laughs> so uh, I hear these paradise speeches, and I think sounds like Thanksgiving to me, <laughs> where I have a loud family, and we get in over dinner, and we get a little bit of wine, and we start talking about what we want and what we think is right. And so I, I begin to- And then you kill your father. And then, <laughs> <laughs> Serve him up. That's right. <laughs> oh. Yes, yes, Thanksgiving. I've had the most fun writing Electra, and it's because she's a middle sister, and I'm a middle sister. And it's the Jan Brady and all of us coming out through her. Um, and I I just kind of delight in her venom because I can't go there. So I can go there through her at the my older sister, you know, the, my baby sister gets all the attention. My older sister gets to do whatever she wants. And then there's me. And so in, in one respect, you know, I think Electra's just delightful in her viciousness. Um, but her, her sorrow hits me to my core. She just wants her mom's love. And if her mom embraced her earlier and wasn't so hung up on the death of the other child, that there, this might not have come to pass, that she might have been able to have a life. And that sense of loss, I just think, just kind of hurts me deep. And, um, it, I, you know, and I think that if it doesn't hurt you, you don't write it. So you have to kind of go to those dark places and put it out there and Thank goodness I have the structure of the Greeks and what happened to them to go there. But I think you always find something personal in it. Well, The Thinning Veil, the play we've been talking about, produced by you, Ted Warburton, and written and directed by you, Kirsten Brandt, runs for two consecutive weekends coming up, right? Correct. Well, thanks very much, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Kirsten Brandt is the writer and director, and Ted Warburton is the producer of the new play, The Thinning Veil, which premieres this coming Friday, March 2nd, at UC Santa Cruz. And you can find out more at santacruztickets.com, the UCSC ticket office at 831-459-2159, or the Santa Cruz Civic box office at 831-420-5260. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. You can learn more about us at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week, Sunday at noon. Mm-hmm.